This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in the news, we have a new sauropod named Oceanotitan. So easy to say. Yeah. (laughs) We also have a bunch of 3D models and exhibits to talk about. Our dinosaur of the day is Gargoylosaurus. And our fun fact is another use for dinosaur feathers that we have never talked about before. Ever. Weird. Yeah. Can't even think of what it would be. You're in for a treat. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Quinn Pomeroy, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Jay, Wouter, Chirac, and Moss Utah Raptor. Yeah, thanks everybody so much for your support. It means a lot to us. This community is growing, and it's really great to see. So if you want to join, then check out our page, patreon.com slash Dino. First in the news, we have a new dinosaur named Oceanotitan Dantazai. It was published in JVP, written by Pedro Mocho and others. And first off, it's called Oceanotitan because ocean. It was found on the coast of Portugal, right next to the Atlantic Ocean. Plus Titan because it's a titanosaur or a titanosaur relative. They're not exactly sure, but it's titanosaur-ish. So there you go. Oceanotitan. Pretty easy name. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good one. Yeah, apparently ocean is basically the same in Latin, so that makes it easier. Hmm. And then Dantazai is after the Portuguese paleontologist Pedro Dantas, who worked in Lorinha, where Oceanotitan is from and where there have been lots of other sauropods from recently too. This Oceanotitan find is a decent find for a sauropod. It's not great, but it's also not terrible. It's multiple bones. <laughs> they found the hips through the ankle bone of one leg, although the femur is broken into lots of pieces and has a pretty big piece missing from the middle. And in fact, most of the bones are kind of shattered into a whole bunch of pieces that have been glued back together, mm. which I think is part of the issue with the preservation. They also found a shoulder blade which is in at least a dozen pieces, and a bunch of tail vertebrae. But as usual, there was no skull found. And in this case, there weren't even any neck or back vertebrae either, just tail vertebrae, which are kind of the least useful of the vertebrae (laughs) overall. Well, the Oceanotitan might disagree. Tail vertebrae probably came in real handy. True. 
It's just <laughs> not for figuring out how close it's related to other dinosaurs. I know, I know. Here it's giving me a look. You can imagine. <laughs> so with Ocean of Titan, they didn't do histology, so we don't know how old it is when it died. And they also skipped on guessing its weight and its length. But without an age, I don't know how informative that would be anyway, because if it was still growing, it could have gotten way bigger. They reconstruct the femur at about 1.3 meters or 4 foot 3 inches tall slash long, depending on how you want to look at it. And that's about three quarters the size of a Brachiosaurus femur, which is one of its close-ish relatives. So gives you some idea about its size. It's one, definitely on the bigger end. It's hard to figure out what its closest relatives were because there were so many missing bones and a lot of the most diagnostic parts of the dinosaur are not in like tail vertebrae. So in their analysis, it basically came out as a not quite titanosaur. <laughs> like maybe it's a titanosaur form or maybe it's outside that group as just kind of like a macronarian, which is a really broad term for a lot of sauropods. So that's what's in the title. They just call it a macronarian. But since they put Titan in the name of Oceanotitan. They seem pretty confident. Yeah, I don't know. But it seems like they're implying, yeah, that it's a titanosaur. Another funny thing, even though it's called macronarian, macronarian refers to a large nasal opening. Hmm. But usually when we find macronarian dinosaurs, we don't have the skull. So it's kind of funny to me because it's named after this thing that we almost never see. We're just kind of assuming they all have the same type of skull, I guess. <laughs> it might be why a lot of people don't like the term macronarian that much anymore. It's kind of falling out of favor a little bit in some circles. So I'm thinking of Oceanotitan as kind of a three-quarter scale European Brachiosaurus, but who knows? We really don't know what it looked like. We know what its leg looked like pretty well. One of its legs <laughs> and its scapula, but that's about it. We know the overall shape because it's a sauropod. Yeah, general body plan. They also didn't mention when it's from in the paper, other than to say that it's from the late Jurassic. I'm guessing it's from around the same time as other dinosaurs from the Larinha formation, which would make it like 153, I think, million years ago. It's about the same as the Morrison formation, where we have Brachiosaurus and some of these other big sauropods in the U.S., so this Portugal area might become kind of like the Morrison formation of Europe. <laughs> it would be cool if we could find a lot more sauropods out there. The specimen got its specimen number from the Natural History Museum in Torres Verdas, Portugal, which is only about 10 miles south from the find. But I don't think they have any public display space. So it's unlikely you'll be able to see this actual fossil oh, on display. Too bad. Yeah. It is, one, you know, it's decent. It's kind of cool to see the legs. I like the mounted sauropod legs when you have them. Gives you just a crazy sense of scale of how huge these things are. Right, they're often taller than people. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just the femur alone in this thing is over four feet tall. So <laughs> for sure, you could probably stand underneath its belly, even if you were pretty tall <laughs> in between its legs. <laughs> And our next article is also about sauropods. It's a sauropod kind of day. Nice. <laughs> That's a good day. It's okay. There's a <laughs> it's from the Journal of Morphology. And this paper was written by Andreas Channel and others. And really, like with the last find, how it was missing the foot, it went down to kind of the ankle bone and stopped. Apparently, a lot of sauropods do not have feet. 
At least the fines don't have feet. <laughs> I was going to say, how did they get around? The sauropods themselves probably have feet. <laughs> we, we infer it, <laughs> but we don't really know for sure, I guess. So they want to figure out what the posture of sauropod feet were, for lack of a better term. But basically, if they stood on tiptoes or if they had kind of a whole foot flat on the ground or something in between. And apparently a rotosaurus foot from Australia is the only articulated sauropod foot anywhere in Gondwana from the middle Jurassic. And even that one is missing a toe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's hard to find a good sauropod foot. And a quick reminder, Gondwana is mostly Africa, Australia, and South America. So it's a good chunk of the world and for tens of millions of years. And we have one mostly complete articulated foot and that's it. So they looked at this foot and they compared it with different foot postures ranging from the whole foot pressed flat against the ground to tiptoes where only the claws touch the ground and then three levels in between. So we've mentioned a couple of these words before so I want to just kind of quickly go through them. The heel on the ground is called plantigrady. We never really talk about that with dinosaurs because I don't think any dinosaurs were plantigrades but that's what we are. So our heel is on the ground when we walk. And that's what we think of a normal foot being like, obviously, because that's how our feet are. But if you think about something like a dog, their foot is not all the way on the ground. They're more on their toes. And that's called digitigrady or their digitigrades. And that's what we usually think of with theropods and things like that. They're kind of on their tiptoes. That's how a lot of modern birds are. It looks like their leg is bending backwards, but it's really just part of their foot that's bending there. Then there's a name I've never seen before, which is when there's just some of the toe on the ground, which they call subunguligrady. That's because the one with just the tips of the claws is called unguligrady. And obviously that comes after ungulates, which is basically things with hooves. And since hooves are essentially claws, if you look at their skeleton, an ungulate is basically walking on the tips of its fingernails or, you know, the hooves. Oh, that's, you know, their legs are very skinny. Right. It's like their foot is at a, like a 90 degree angle to where our foot is right lined up with the leg. It's pretty weird. It is. Never thought about it before. Yeah. And all of those are theoretically possible for a dinosaur foot if all you find are just loose scattered bones. But since they had an articulated one, they thought maybe they could figure out a little bit more and kind of look at the range of motion of some of the joints and things like that since they know how they're all lined up. So they did these range of motion studies. And after reading through it, I came to the conclusion that it didn't really teach them much <laughs> because what they ended up doing was looking at modern animals for comparison. And even after they did that, they came up with the idea that it was somewhere in the ungula grade to digitigrade range, which is kind of what we already knew. Mm. So not a lot of great new insight from this, but I think it was a good starting point for some more research. And what they pointed out too is that no matter which posture the foot ultimately had, it was probably a quote-unquote functional plantigrade anyway, because like with elephants, even though elephants are walking on their toes, they're like digitigrades to unguligrades and that, that sort of range, they have a huge foot pad under their heel. So there were a lot of news articles about this that talked about how it was like they're wearing high-heeled shoes, because even though their toes aren't on the ground, they've got this big fleshy and fatty pad under the heel of their foot right. to help support their weight. So it makes them look like they're walking with their whole foot on the ground anyway, which you need because they weigh like 10 times as much as an elephant. So you can't just be on your tiptoes. It's going to destroy your toes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, be curious if there's further research done on this. 
Yeah, they're basically saying we won't ever know unless we find a preserved fleshy foot pad, which we've seen in some tracks. We've seen like some details from things like that, but we don't have a great example yet. Need more fossils. Yeah. Next, we've got a quick update about the Ceratopsian dinosaur bones that were recently found in Highlands Ranch in Colorado. So far, about 20 pieces have been found, including ribs, humerus, and tibia, maybe part of the frill. It's not clear yet what kind of ceratopsian it is, but researchers and volunteers at the Denver Museum of Natural Science are going to work to sort and identify the bones. That'd be a fun project. Yeah, I'd be terrible at it, though. Mm. (laughs) Just going through piles of loose bones, trying to figure out where they go. Yeah. Well, if you like puzzles. True. It's a pretty epic puzzle Mm -hmm. because they don't actually fit together at the end. (laughs) That's true. Well, some of them do. Yeah, a little bit. We've got an update on the dueling dinosaurs. Quick recap is that they're part of a lawsuit that's been going on since 2014. They're found on private land in Montana. There's an argument between the majority owners of the mineral rights and the owners of the surface property where the fossils were found. And since this pointed out that there was this ambiguous nature of some of the contracts in Montana about who would own a fossil, whether it's the person who owns surface rights or mineral rights, a law was passed saying that, well, it goes to the surface rights holder if it's not otherwise specified. But in the US, if you pass a law like this, it doesn't affect previous contracts. It's only going forward. So they still have to sort this one out. Right. So Governor Steve Bullock signed that law April 16th, but as Garrett said, had nothing to do with this case. It just has to do with cases going forward. Except that now it does have to do with this case because (laughs) the federal court in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals recently ruled for Montana Supreme Court to weigh in. And Montana Supreme Court can choose to accept, reject, or modify the question. So it went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and then they pushed it back down to Montana's Supreme Court. That's interesting. Yes. (laughs) And they can choose to say something or not say anything. And then they could include this new law in Mm -hmm. there. The statement? Oh, that's weird. (laughs) So yeah, we'll keep you posted if we hear more. When it finally gets sorted out. These things always take a while. In Thailand, dinosaur footprints have been found in Fufalek National Park. They're found during a field survey south of a monastery. There's a team of geological experts and local officials who found them. And they are in two locations. The tracks are from theropods. And similar footprints have been found in another province in Thailand. Which makes sense. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of dinosaur footprints in Thailand. they got a ton of them. Mm-hmm. In Amherst, Massachusetts, Amherst College's Bineski Museum of Natural History is now home to some dinosaur footprints. These were stolen back in 2002, but then a police officer in Gill saw two men going up a steep embankment with heavy duffel bags and thought it was suspicious. They told him <laughs> they were collecting stone for a fireplace, but it turned out to be those dinosaur tracks that they had poached and wanted to sell online. Oof. Yep. So the footprints were put in storage until now. It's not clear what kind of dinosaur the tracks belong to. It could be herbivorous or carnivorous, but they're from the Jurassic about 200 million years ago. I wonder what's going to happen to the people that stole them. Oh, they got sentenced a long time ago. This was all wrapped up. It was just they didn't know what to do with the tracks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but now they are in a museum. Cool. Glenrock Paleon Museum in Wyoming has a new ceratopsian nicknamed Carol. It's a good nickname. So she may be a Taurosaurus or a new kind of species, they're saying. Museum director Sean Smith said, quote, we're very confident it's not Triceratops, which Hmm. is cool, but it's a very common animal from the Cretaceous, end quote. So they are in the 
splitter category, I would say. Yeah, I guess so. If you're very confident it's not a Triceratops saying it is a Taurosaurus. Mm -hmm. Or something else. (laughs) Interesting. So they're hoping to find more bones so that they have a better idea of what it is. And they'll be looking this summer. They've been digging for five years already, but, you know, it might take a lot longer to get everything that's in where they're digging. They say that there's some differences for why they think... Carol is not a Triceratops. It's that Carol's neck bones aren't fused and she has more slender ribs and her shoulder blade is in a different shape. Interesting. If that's part of the Taurosaurus Triceratops continuum, having a Taurosaurus that's still so skeletally immature without fused bones could be a good piece of evidence for the splitter camp. True. In Washington, D.C., Smithsonian created these really cool 3D models of the nation's T-Rex and their Triceratops. They did skulls and full skeletons, and anybody can download and print them, or if you want to just look at them online, it's pretty fun. These are their T-Rex and Triceratops, which you'll be able to see starting June 8th in the Hall of Fossils Deep Time exhibit that's opening up. The T-Rex will be standing over the Triceratops. I think the Triceratops' name is Hatcher. The T-Rex bones come from one animal, but the Triceratops is a composite. There's over 200 T-Rex bones, which arrived in 16 crates in April 2014 to the museum. So the team used handheld 3D scanners and individually captured each bone. I can only imagine how long that took. There you go, Gary, if you want to 3D print a T-Rex skull. I do, although I already have a couple, but I want another one. (laughs) (laughs) Or Triceratops. I don't have a Triceratops yet. In China, there's a big dinosaur exhibit at the Guangdong Science Center called The World's Largest Dinosaurs. It's a traveling exhibit. It's from the American Museum of Natural History. There's a lot of sauropods, including a life-size replica of Mementosaurus, as well as fossils, interactive displays where you can pump blood for a sauropod. Hmm. And the exhibit's open until early October. That reminds me of that experiment where they were trying to test how strong a heart had to be to pump blood up to a sauropod's head. Mm -hmm. And then the thing broke and it got like the fake blood all over the place where they were testing it. Oh, I don't remember it breaking. Yeah. Hopefully that doesn't happen in this museum. Yeah. Shower small children and fake dinosaur blood. Yeah, that might be the same exhibit because we saw that years ago. It wasn't an exhibit. That was an actual like journal study. It was just scientists testing. Oh, that, that, that. But I do remember going to the AMNH to see a special sauropod exhibit years Mm. and years ago. Could be the same one. Maybe it's been updated. But anyway, we are in the season of dinosaur exhibits. (laughs) I'd say there's lots of museums and zoos and places that are having some special exhibits for the summer. So in Florida, Flamingo Gardens has life-size dinosaurs. Guy Darrow, a builder, artist, and paleontologist, created them. He maintains them for the Lost World of Dinosaurs exhibition, which is open from now until September 2nd. And they include an allosaurus and three baby allosaurus and a companion show called Echoes of Extinction that has fossils, including a Dakota raptor tibia that you can touch. Also, Field Station Dinosaurs reopened in New Jersey. Huh. Yeah, I didn't... Kind of surprising. I didn't realize. I thought they had moved, but maybe they just expanded. Don't know the details on that, but... You can walk around, you can see animatronic dinosaurs and play games and learn about dinosaurs. It's a pretty good afternoon. We did it once when they first opened. Yeah, it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, it was kind of fun to walk around. It'd be really fun with kids. Yeah. But like most of the animatronic dinosaur outdoor exhibits, they're not the most exciting movements that they do. And once you've seen a few of them, you've kind of seen them all. But they're not in the obvious places either. You kind of have to search for them while walking around. Yeah. 
In Wisconsin, the Milwaukee County Zoo has Lego dinosaurs from now until September 2nd. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's the UK-based Brick Dinos exhibit, plus some other prehistoric animals. And they have four life-size sculptures, including Theropod, Masiakosaurus, and 26 smaller scenes. And there's some good smaller scenes. It's at least one Stegosaurus that I saw in the pictures. Cool. Stegosaurus would look cool in Lego form. Mm Mm-hmm. I think any dinosaur looks good in Lego form. Yeah. (laughs) In Kansas City, Missouri, there's a retired couple, Bruce and Judith Wake, who are enjoying digging for dinosaur bones. And they went on digs even while they were still working as teachers. They found bones from 200 different dinosaurs. They work with universities and private landowners, and they've turned their basement into a museum. So they have a Triceratops frill, a T-Rex tooth, and an Ankylosaurus scute, lots of other stuff. And they also go to schools and other events to help educate kids and inspire them to explore. So I thought that was a pretty fun piece to read. You've got this couple that share this enthusiasm for dinosaurs. Yeah, it's a fun way to spend retirement, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. We've also got some stuff about games. So PC Games listed the best dinosaur games on PC, and they included Ark Survival Evolved, Jurassic Park Evolution, Lego Jurassic World, which is my favorite. Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. Dino D-Day, which is an alternative to the traditional World War II shooter game, and Turok and Turok 2, among others. Yeah, my favorite is the Legos. Ark Survival Evolved is barely about dinosaurs at this point. They've added so much other stuff. It's like there's dinosaurs, but there's also so much. There's like dragons and all sorts of crazy town. Yeah, I think some of these other games have dragons and other non-dinosaurs. We also have a note from Ari Rudenko, who we interviewed quite a while ago now about his dinosaur dances. And he's putting on a new theatrical performance called Ghosts of Hell Creek, which just sounds awesome. Yeah, he's been working on this for a while. I think it's for ages 18 and up if I'm reading (laughs) the promotional material correctly. And it's going to have two nights showing in June, the 14th and 15th, in Singapadu, Bali in Indonesia. If you're in the area, I think we have a couple listeners out there. Yeah, we interviewed him back in episode 104, Archaeopteryx, if you want to go back and remind yourself or listen for the first time. But basically, he spent a bunch of time observing these different native dances that kind of simulate birds and then also watching birds and trying to like practice how you might mimic a bird in dance form and came up with all this really cool stuff. And he's hoping that the show might go on the road, too. So it might make it closer to where we are. That'd be cool. Yeah. Hope it does. Well, if there's any listeners in the area and you're able to see the show, please let us know. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now into our dinosaur of the day, Gargoylosaurus, which was a request from Taco Taco via our Discord and Patreon. So thanks. And just a quick reminder that that's one of the perks of being our patron is you get to request dinosaurs. Gargoylosaurus was an ankylosaur that lived in the Jurassic and what is now Wyoming in the U.S., the Morris information. It's estimated to be about 9.8 to 11.5 feet or 3 to 3.5 meters long. And it's estimated to weigh up to 2,200 pounds or one ton. The type species is Gargoylosaurus... Park Pinorum. It was described in 1998 by Kenneth Carpenter and others, and the name means gargoyle lizard. The genus name is because its profile looks like a gargoyle. Then the species name refers to Parker and Pinagar, who found the holotype. Do you want to be associated with a gargoyle with a species name? <laughs> yeah, why not? It's pretty cool. <laughs> Gargoylosaurus had a triangular shaped skull. The skull's longer than it is wide, and it had triangular scutes at the rear corners of the skull. It also had a narrow rostrum and a simple direct air passage in the snout, so not complex in the loops as seen in some Cretaceous ankylosaurids. It had a long, narrow, scooped beak and deeply inset cheek teeth. Gargoylosaurus also had four kinds of dermal armor. There were these thick, elongated spines, thin, triangular plates with hollow bases, individual flat-keeled ovate scutes, and scutes and ossicles that were fused into a single sheet. It also had post-orbital horns and shoulder spikes. Gargoylosaurus had a mixture of ankylosaurid and nodosaurid features. The jugal horns, hollow base spines, and scutes are ankylosaur-like, and the narrow snout is nodosaur-like. The fossils were found in 1996. They found the holotype in two partial skeletons, and the holotype includes most of the skull in a partial skeleton. The fossils were found by Western Paleontological Laboratories and then donated to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. A bulldozer, unfortunately, had damaged the skull. Gargoylosaurus is one of two ankylosaurs found in the Morrison Formation, along with Mimora pelta. In 2013, Kenneth Carpenter and others described a Gargoylosaurus pelvis and found that it had an interesting pelvis because though it was oriented horizontally, it did not flare out like other ankylosaurs. The Gargoylosaurus pelvis is, quote, intermediate in its morphology, they said. Originally, Gargoylosaurus was called Gargoylosaurus parkpinae, but then renamed to Gargoylosaurus parkpinorum in 2001. They had to Latinize the name more. 
you can see a skeletal reconstruction at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And our fun fact of the day is about a new feature for feathers, new potential use for dinosaur feathers. Oh, right. Almost forgot. Yeah. (laughs) So we talk about feathers being used for display, flight, warmth, and even cooling, but they can also be used for improving hearing. What? Yeah. So birders probably know where I'm going with this, but I'm talking about owls. (laughs) So their faces look like a huge pair of eyes in the middle of a wide face. Okay. Everyone knows what an owl looks like, but really their head, and by head, I mean like the skull, not like the big fluffy feathers, is just a little bit bigger than the eyes. So the the skull kind of stops where the eyes are, both on the top and the sides. And then it's just this huge plume of feathers sticking out all over the place, making it look like they have a big head. Right, because if you pet an owl, you notice. Sinks right in. Yeah. Yeah. So as a result, their ears are essentially right behind their eyes. I mean, they are on our head too, but if you look at an owl's head, you kind of imagine their ears being like off to the sides, but they're really like sunk in oh, yeah. behind those feathers. Because some of the some owls have things that look like ears on the yes, top of their heads. Yes, like the horned owl. Mm-hmm. And some of them even have ears in the name of the common name of the owl, like different things about their ears, but they're just little tufts of feathers that are more about their mood <laughs> on the top of their head. They have nothing to do with hearing. So- The way that their hearing works is really fascinating. What they have is a thing called a facial disc. And that's what you see, you know, they they kind of have these two big discs around their eyes, but they're not for improving sight or anything like that. What it does is it actually focuses in the sound towards their ears, which, you know, are right by their eyes. So it looks like it just fans out from their eyes, but it's really fanning out from their ears that are right next to their eyes. Hmm. It's really interesting. And what it does is it amplifies the sound quite a bit. I've read somebody say that it was up to 20 decibels, which would be like four times the volume Wow! by just having this facial disc. I don't know how you could test that. So I don't, I don't know how much to trust that number, but definitely having a big satellite dish type thing does amplify sound. If you've ever watched a sports game or something, you see them with those dishes on the sideline trying to get better sound, you know, because it can amplify it. And apparently owls can even adjust the shape of their facial disc to focus on specific frequencies when they're hunting, which is amazing. Wow. So it is possible that some dinosaurs had big fluffy feather ears. Oh my gosh, that'd be so weird. Because <laughs> we know that dinosaurs had feathers and like you, Tyrannus, it's covered in feathers. Why not add a little dish by the <laughs> ear to suck in a little bit more <laughs> audio? dinosaurs that looked like owls. Well, I guess owls are dinosaurs, but still. Yeah, I mean, I don't think based on the shape of their face, because owls have like remarkably flat faces is Mm -hmm. one of the things about them. From what we can tell with dinosaurs, they tended to have like a big snout and stuff like that. So I don't think they would have had like the facial disc, but with the ears on the side of their head, they could have had a feathery disc on the side of their head to like bring in sound or maybe on the front. I don't know if it routed it properly possible so weird it is super weird (laughs) (laughs) on that fun fact note that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks again for listening don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes also check out our page patreon.com slash i know dino for some cool rewards thanks for listening and until next time